I'm Michelle Orman, and this is The Couture Podcast. As a fifth-generation diamantaire, designer Jade Trow has an intrinsic understanding of diamonds that allows her to reinterpret classic styles with a unique and fresh perspective. And while she combines the analytical and the creative sides of her consciousness in developing lines that can be commercially successful, the sentimentality that she has always attributed to diamonds continues to be front and center in her creative process. It was a delight to sit down with Jade to hear about her lifelong affiliation with diamonds, the lessons her experiences continue to teach her, and the joy she feels every day in being able to do what she loves for a living. I am delighted to be sitting across from you, Jade Trout. Thank you so much for carving out your time to come and hang out with me. How's it going? Everything is good. I'm so happy to be here. So um, I'm going to kick this off the way I do all of the podcasts and just ask where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you? Uh, I'm a city girl, New York City, born and bred. I like to call myself a townie. I truly have never (laughs) left. I mean, it sounds sad, but it is true. I did move to Miami for a hot second in 2016. And after about six months, I was like, get me back to New York as soon as possible. (laughs) Um, So I grew up in the city. At some point, I made this big shift from the Upper East Side to the Upper West Side. Oh, my goodness. I had to change all my friends. There was different (laughs) tables. Truly, my whole life changed when I became an Upper West Sider. And then I went to NYU. And um, honestly, my sixth grade yearbook, my my future profession was jewelry designer. Really? So I guess on some level, I was somebody that was, you know, that kind of kid. Like Mm -hmm. I was definitely more like fashion oriented, whatnot, not sports, too left feet. My mom would say, don't forget to pick up your feet when you walk when I ran. (laughs) Um, But um, but that was me. I was a city girl. Well, and you were born into the diamond trade, right? So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so my gra- I, like it was a it was a generation removed. It was my grandfather. So my okay. dad was a lawyer. My mom was a mom, but she def- she was very close with my grandfather. So and I think that's how I became as close with him as well. Um, but she she used to come take me to visit him all the time. So I feel like 47th Street was something that I knew even as a kid. And then she would go and do her thing that she needed to do on the street and she'd leave me there. My grandfather would take out a little parcel of diamonds. And so what he manufactured, what he was a diamond manufacturer. So we, he was a client of De Beers, a De Beers site holder. And every 10 times a year, he would get rough diamonds in from from De Beers, and then he would polish them. And so what he manufactured finished as like a 30, 25-point diamond up to a two-carat diamond. So he'd have these little parcels, and what he specialized in was rounds and what we called round-edged fancies. So it's pear shapes, ovals, marquise shapes, mostly, and maybe some emerald cuts. And so he'd have these little parcels of as they became more and more imperfect, I could play with them. So he'd give me a little parcel of diamonds, and he'd say here you go, and a tweezer. And truly from when I was maybe seven years old, you could like park me in a corner at a desk and I would spend two hours just separating all the pear shapes from the marquees from the ovals. Wow. And that was exciting for me. And then at the end, he'd say, you can pick one. And then I would pick one diamond and that would take at least an hour to, you know, which diamond do I want? And then he'd put my name on it and a parcel paper and then he'd put it in a little envelope and then I'd say, can I see all my other diamonds? And then I'd get to revisit them and I'd say, oh, can I switch this one? I like that one. (laughs) And then actually that was one of the first pieces I made for myself. I took all the diamonds and made these little stackable rings, each with a different shaped diamond that I used to wear. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Do you still have that piece? I still have them. I actually recently thought that it was time to either change them up because they have sentimental value Mm -hmm. or, you know, I think I should just reset them into something that's more in my vein. In fact, you're inspiring me. I'm going to do that. New project. Add it to your to-do list. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So did you know how special they were? I mean, were you aware of that? I mean, I just feel like being immersed and having them around you, did your your grandfather convey to you, like, these are very valuable. Like, these are important things that you're doing. I mean, the value I definitely understood. Okay. The, um, yeah, I think I did. I mean, so my, my 
My family survived World War II from diamonds. My great-grandmother was a seamstress, and she sewed diamonds into the lapels of her coats and lived in a Swiss refugee camp, and she would trade diamonds wow. for things. So I think I always understood that it was kind of our lifeline. Um, and it was also my grandfather, while he came, he was not in Switzerland, he came via Casablanca, Northern Africa. Um, but when he came to America, he also, he was a rabbi at first and then moved into the diamond business. And I know that, you know, he definitely didn't just like arrive here and he was like diamonds, you yeah. know, he had to work <laughs> his way from the very, very beginnings all over again. Um, but I don't know that I, I didn't, you know, being in the diamond industry is dramatically different from being in the jewelry business. Mm -hmm. It's like being a dairy farmer or like someone who does agriculture and then saying, oh, okay, I understand about cows, so I'm going to make luxury leather goods. Like, they're <laughs> okay. two really different things. Like, we were do like, my grandfather sold quantities of loose diamonds. I he never walked into a trade show. I never, he never made a piece of jewelry. Never. Mm -hmm. he, he, in fact, that's how I started Jade Trow because when I started working for him, I wanted to make some jewelry for friends of mine. And he said, well, I don't sell jewelry. You can buy the diamonds from me. You're going to have to sell the jewelry on your own. Wow. So you went into the family business, as it were, which, by the way, I didn't realize that it kind of skipped a generation with your with your parents. Um, but you went into the diamond trade initially, right, before starting your line? Yeah. So I started in my freshman year of college. I kind of wanted a Friday job. And I said to my grand, and I mentioned it to my grandfather. And he said, come in and you'll take, you know, in the parcel papers, the diamond parcel papers, there's usually two layers of paper in there. Mm -hmm. And you have to like manually put a piece of cotton in between the two so that you can <laughs> protect the diamonds. And he's like, you'll just put cotton in the parcel papers. <laughs> and so for my, and it was, I think it was my second, I went to NYU. So true, I'm a townie. I never left. And so my, so my freshman year on Friday, I'd go in and I'd spend like three hours just putting cotton in the parcel papers. I think it was also just an excuse for my grandfather to take me to like the diamond dare across the street for lunch or down to the mm. Diamond Club for lunch, you know? What a good um, opportunity to spend time with your grandfather, too. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was – obviously, then I was a freshman in college while I was very close to him and I and and loved him. There was a little part of me that was like – Yeah, it's Friday know, night. Exactly. <laughs> like, let, let's go. Um, you know, it usually rolled into me going to his house for Friday for Shabbat dinner on Friday night. You know, it was a lot. It was he? He was very calculated in his Friday <laughs> plan. Um, but then in my sophomore year of college, it, you know, De Beers was going through a big transformation at the same time that I was that I started in the business. And so, you know, at that time, De Beers didn't operate in the United States, mm -hmm. so he had to go to London when he had to go and accept the diamonds and all that. And by my sophomore year, he didn't want to go anymore. It had skipped a generation, as I mentioned. So mm -hmm. my his br brothers were out already, and my my cousins, who were 10 years older than me, were the ones going to De Beers. So my grandfather said, I want you to go. And I was like, um, I'm a sophomore in college. I literally know nothing about diamonds. I cannot go. He's like, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I'll be fine. <laughs> and he put me on a plane. And I went to London for a day. He's like, just, just open it up. Just just put them all on the scale. Tell me if there's any. We, we got a box that was the two and a half to four carats in rough. Tell me how many four carat pluses there are. It's all you have to do. It's fine. And that was it. Basically, from then on, I was in the business. That's great. So you really had to like, well, I like teach yourself. You were like it were def definitely learning as you went along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it truly was. So he, first of all, refused to let me go to GIA because he wanted me to look at diamonds like a merchant and not like a doctor. Okay. And so like when I, he, he had a gemologist on staff. So as these, the boxes were coming in of rough that would then turn into polished. We had a diamond cutting factory across the street. He, We had three columns. And so one column, which is what he already did you know, before me, but one column was what they thought the grade would be. Then it was what GIA graded it as. And then they folded it over and they had my grade. And basically, once I had gotten like, I think an 80% or whatever, once I had gotten the vast majority of them correct, that's when he was like, you got it. This is like your GIA education. You're educated. Wow. But that's really cool for him to put his faith in you like that. And also just 
you know, as a woman in what's largely still a male dominated industry, right? Yeah. I mean, and and what was that like to navigate? Do you have any I mean, did that help you, you know, I don't know, toughen up your skin to be able to handle that kind of thing? Or do you have any insight for other women that might be trying to make it in a man's world? I mean, it is a man's world, but. That's for sure. Um, Although I feel like in jewelry, I feel like I have the camaraderie of a lot Mm. of women, which is amazing and different. Um, I think that, so when I graduated college and we started, the world really did evolve a lot, a lot. I mean, even in the diamond space, it evolved a lot. So when I first came into the business, you know, if you wanted to measure what a di- like the the table percentage of a diamond, you literally needed to look in a microscope and put a little ruler and then do math on your calculator. And in the like four years that I was in college, by the end of it, I had convinced him to buy this machine, which now everybody has, mm. where you stick it on the machine and it measures it in 360 and it shows you what every single facet is and what the angle is of everything. So um, in that time, a lot changed. And when I graduated college, we no longer manufactured in New York anymore. And mm. in that, I had to start going on buying trips to Belgium. And so I started going on these trips. And whereas in New York, I felt like a little more, um, I don't know if it was that I there you saw more women or I just didn't feel it as much. I was around my grandfather. But then I was getting on a plane and going to Belgium to buy diamonds with essentially whatever budget. My grandfather would just say, buy what you feel that you're buying well. Mm-hmm. And no one took me seriously. In fact, I had to have like an an older Belgian gentleman escort me from place to place because they wouldn't negotiate with me. They wouldn't, like, they essentially wouldn't let me in the door if I wasn't with him. You know, even though, like, Trow is a very well-respected name in Antwerp and my cousins were there, it was just, it wasn't, like, it was a non-starter. They just completely disregarded you. Completely. Did you ever get to the point where you didn't need to have a male escort? I mean... I think there was a point where, because I definitely stood my own and in the negotiating, I certainly stood my own. Um, So at some some point, I think that they they knew who I was and also, you know, money talks, right? So once I did some buying, they were like, oh, she's somebody who actually buys, so it's okay. But I always felt like I needed it. I always felt like there was something happening in French that I wasn't comprehending that somehow I was at a disadvantage partially because of my gender. Wow. That must have been so frustrating. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you got through it, but. I, it, it's, I think that when I was like in my early 20s, it was kind of empowering and interesting and also insane because I would truly be the only woman, like the only woman. It was wild. Yeah. But. Then in my late in my twenties, my later twenties, after I had children and I started going, then it was a whole different thing because then I just didn't want to go. So then I would go and I'd be like crying the whole time because I just wanted to be with my babies. <laughs> and, and then it and then it was almost like the the it the conversation changed a little because they were like, "Oh, poor you that you have to leave your family." And I was like, "No, no, no, it's okay. Yeah, good means to an end. I'm so happy. I always worked. Yeah. Well, and so was that you know part of I mean other than your yearbook stating that you were going to be a jewelry designer. And it's something you always knew. And obviously you have in just an inherent sense of fashion ever since I've known you, you've always been very stylish. So what was one of the watershed moments for you that you decided you wanted to start a line of jewelry? Um, Okay. So I, I, my friend actually knows this and we barely ever talk. And Allah, we were just having an offline conversation about being a good friend. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a shout out to my friend, Debbie. Um, I was, my kids were in nursery school and she was giving me a lift to my office with my grandfather. And I guess, you know, I had always done a lot of classic diamond jewelry pieces for my friends. I'd make engagement rings. And then, you know, before I had children in my early 20s, I dappled with the idea of having a jewelry line, which is how you and I mm-hmm. met in our former former lives, in our first <laughs> lives. And I really tried, but I just, you know, my my, I was very oriented towards starting a family and it was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, my friend's giving me a lift and I kept saying, you know, one day when I start a jewelry line, whatever, we must have been talking about some brand. And she looked at me very crassly and was like, when are you going to do it already? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you talk about it all the time. Uh, 
when are you going to do it already? And I, and I literally got to the office that day and I was like, I need to start, I need to do it. And so I truly would, I mean, I'm, that's, the way that I am, I realize that, you know, I'm very like, if I don't do it right away, I might get distracted and move on to something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And I truly was like, that's it. I'm starting a jewelry line. And somebody introduced me to um, someone in the industry who was going to help me and, you know, just like give me some guidance once I had some pieces. And I made some pieces totally blind. I had no idea what I was doing. And I showed it to her and she said, you know, these are beautifully made and you can tell that you understand diamonds, but this is not a collection. Mm. This is some pieces of jewelry. And also it's not really showing your point of view or your personality. So I like your round one, go back to the drawing board. But like round one is not the same when you're working with diamonds and gold. Mm -hmm. It's like was a lot of money. Yeah, I was going to say round one isn't nothing. (laughs) So I kind of, you know, in retrospect, I've thought about that collection and those pieces. um, And a lot of them still exist in my collection today. They've been iterated on a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the, the, like the, the intention of them is the same. Um, and the spirit of them is very similar. Like even like some of the pieces that I'm wearing today, like my, like this, this signal Penelope station necklace, Yeah, this totally existed. It just, you know, it was spaced out differently or whatever. And it took me a little while to sort of, you know, I went to a trade show, um, for which by the way, like my entire beginning part of my career, I didn't even know how to get into a trade show. I used to have to like ask someone to lend me a badge and I would have to go incognito as someone else. Like a wig and sunglasses. Truly. And by the way, and when I think about it now, I think about some designers who are, you know, really well-recognized designers now. And I remember them being at like the JA show in a little 10 by 10 booth themselves with maybe one other person. And so like, you know, I feel like a child, even though I have, you know, almost 14 year old children, Yeah, but I still feel like I have so much to learn. And when I think about the life cycle of, you know, where other people have gone from and where they are now, it's Mm -hmm. just... And I don't, I don't know. It feels like it goes like that, right? And yeah. you have to just like hustle and go and move. And I think that's why I'm like, do it now or don't do it at all. But you got to go. Well, it requires a leap of faith, right? Yeah. And that just has to happen in a moment. It doesn't yeah. matter how much prep you've done and how much planning and research. Like ultimately, yeah. you got to take the leap. Yeah. And exactly. so God bless Debbie for telling you yes. to just get off your butt and do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and from and like from there on. Oh, and I so I did this little trade show and I remember looking around and it was a more diamond oriented little show and I remember looking around and thinking, you know, there's a lot of diamond jewelry out there and I had gone to these like, you know, other shows that were more designer like couture shows where there's a lot of design, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of prolific design. And it took me a little while to figure out that I don't need to be, I don't need to work with some medium that no one's ever worked with in the fine jewelry space. I actually have a point of difference just understanding diamonds intrinsically in the way that I do. Whereas at the beginning, like I almost had like too much, it was like imposter syndrome. Like I'm a diamond dealer. I can't be a jewelry designer. And then I realized like, Everyone talks about classic diamond jewelry. Classic diamond jewelry, who's defined what classic diamond jewelry is? Why can't that definition be evolving and changing? Why is it that like people define like your core classic diamond jewelry wardrobe being like a pair of studs and an eternity band and a railroad tennis bracelet? So I think once I defined that and I was like, okay, this is my space. I will totally lean in and honor the fact that I know diamonds and that I love it, but that I also have an aesthetic that is designer oriented. That was when I think things started to change well, for and, me. And you really, I mean, that's an excellent point because, like, w- since when has classic needed to equate to boring, right? Yeah. And that's what you're, that's what you're ultimately describing. And I, it's funny because I don't think of your jewelry as classic diamond. If I really look at it and think about it, which I've done a number of times, because especially I don't know, <laughs> drooling over your Instagram feed or whatever, um, it has like a it's. It's essential. It's like diamond essentials, but it it has more of an avant-garde take on what you would consider classics and probably the stuff that you were making for your friends when you were still working for your grandfather. Yeah. That was probably like diamond halo rings and whatever. But exactly. um, but your use of diamonds specifically 
is I think one of the things that sets sets it apart, like your combination of, you know, you might mix a, you know, a pair with a round or something, you know, something like that, which I think that has to come from being really confident with the stones and knowing how they, how they're going to play together in yeah. a piece. Yeah. And I think also part of that is knowing how I can replicate something because it's, you know, I'm not, do I do lots of one of a kinds and things like that and bespoke and the restyling, which is a big part of what I do. Um, but I'm still also want to have a jewelry line. I want to support my, all of my partners, my retail partners. And so it's all well and good to design something, but if you can't find it again, if I have to wait six months for someone to custom cut it from me. Mm-hmm. So I'm very mindful of, you know, the right juxt- like the right value add proposition of creating pieces that I can also replicate and yeah. supply to my to my partners. Well, you're running a small business, right? Yeah. And, the, and there's so there's a lot on the line. It's your partners, it's the people that work for you, it's your family. I mean, that's ultimately what you're what you're doing. And I I've always admired that I I about you. I feel like I see you as a creative. I definitely see you as a designer, as a creative. And we've talked about that in the past, about the imposter syndrome. But you've also got a very analytical mind. You're a very astute business person. And so um, I think that, and that's reflected in, you know, in your collection and like the sort of the trajectory of your brand that I've been witnessing, you know. And yeah. and so is it hard, I, you know, you mentioned that mindset of a diamond manufacturer, diamond dealer versus designer. Is that hard to kind of have a bridge? I mean, are you sitting there like calculating like, oh, I know that, you know, the paper value of this right here and the price of the gold, like, is it hard for you to reconcile those two different sides of your personality? So it used to be for sure. And I felt like I always had to make pieces that were going to price out well. And I was always kind of thinking and almost to the point that I felt like it was holding me back from being creative. And then, you know, there was like, I've had a few like, like kind of, I guess, watershed moments or like come to Moses moments (laughs) where I'm like, oh, I can, I can just make that. And then people will like it and then they'll want it. And I don't need to be so mindful of like the bottom line. And the truth is, is, you know, I, the analytical part of me as a business person knows that my, I'm very fair with the way that I price my pieces. Mm -hmm. And also I, I, my, my pieces, I think stand for their longevity and their quality and the fact that we make everything in New York and that I am even now, even though, I obviously don't check every single diamond that goes into any every one of my pieces. The person who supplies the vast majority of my diamonds, I've known him for so long. He used to work on the same floor as me when my grandf- in my grandfather mm-hmm. originally in that building. So he's known me probably since the first day I came to work. And when we sat and we sit down every year, or sometimes even more than that, and we sort of like my my options of like the how narrow and how strict I am about the parameters of the goods I want, just you know, I'm I'm always fine tuning that um, from you know in many ways in the quality of the diamonds and the cut and obviously the cut is the most important but that's a whole diamond conversation <laughs> but also now I'm very mindful in terms of you know making sure that they're all natural diamonds because that's a very much one mm-hmm. of my brand pillars um, so I I um, I just know that I'm extremely mindful of, of all of the components and all of the ingredients that go into each one of my pieces. So when I when we get to that like pricing business side of it, I've almost like as the years have gone on and my team has grown, I'm I'm walking farther and farther away from it and I'm just sticking to what I a that I think I'm best at and b what I like doing the most, which I think are the same thing, right? You, usually, I mean, usually, if you're lucky. I mean, <laughs> that's like one of my interview questions when I interview people. I always say, or mostly, actually, when I do like my year and like year end reviews with my team members, yeah, I'll say, you know, what do you like? What do you what do you enjoy doing most, and what do you think you're best at? And they're and, usually the same. Yeah, I mean, if you're lucky, they're the same. Unfortunately, I don't always think that's the case, but for me. Now that I have so many awesome people that work with me, I know that I love 
being on the sales side of things. Like I love doing trunk shows and knowing my clients, but also my clients' clients. So even though, you know, I'm on the move and I do tons of events and I'm constantly on a plane and people will say, why don't, why don't you send someone to do that? And I'm like, why? It's I like doing it. Why don't you send someone to do it? I want (laughs) to do it. But like basically it's selling and designing. Like those are my happy places. And so that's what I do. And the business stuff, Uh, Yeah, on some level, I think like there's a top level like analytical side that Mm -hmm. I like because I think it's part of like the puzzle pieces of, you know, when you see like these huge brands grow and and I'm like, how did they do it? And so Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm slowly trying to figure it out because I would, I'd like to get there mostly just because the bigger my brand gets, the more I get to design. Yeah. Well, and do you feel like I... I know you're a curious person and I've seen you at our antique shows. Like your love of jewelry like is genuine. It's real. And I feel like you're constantly like teaching yourself and going, do you feel like you're through the studies of, you know, antique and historical jewelry and, you know, repurposing other people's diamonds for, you know, bespoke pieces, which is like you said, a a key part of what you do. Has your... Like the sentimentality that you put into diamonds, has that evolved or grown? Because I do think like the diamond dealer mentality, it's like you have to compartmentalize and it's a stone and it's got the value. And But then us jewelry lovers, we're like, oh my God, it's, you know, my grandmother gave me this or whatever the story behind it is. Do you feel like that's grown and evolved over the years or was that always there for you? I, I mean, there was always, there was both sides of it, right? Mm-hmm. But mostly I always was too sentimental about it. And my grandfather used to say, you got to look at diamonds like buttons. This is what we're selling. And I was like, <laughs> no, they are not buttons. They're diamonds. And I always loved them. And I always felt attached to pieces. And and I always was emotional about it. Like even, you know, my, my diamond studs were came from the last box that my grandfather manufactured in New York. Wow. Because I knew that that was the last box. And I was like, I want diamonds from this box because it means something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I def- I've I, always been more on the emotional side than I have been on the, you know, turn and burn side, you know? Yeah. Um, and, the, and the bespoke side and the sentimentality. Um, you know, I had some, someone came into my office recently and they, um, I made a ring for them and they told me the story about how all their jewelry got robbed. They were in LA and their, oh my God. everything in their apartment got robbed. And she's like, I never looked at vintage jewelry the same way again because I thought about how it can exist on the secondhand market. And for like a second, I had this moment where I was like, oh, love vintage shopping. Yeah. Why'd you say that to me? You just destroyed <laughs> it for me. But then I realized that, you know, there's like an energy to it where, you know, you breathe new life into the piece, mm-hmm. right? And it's not really about, yes, I mean, that's horrible and unfortunate and sad. But the fact is, is that like the this fine jewelry, it outlives us. Unless mm-hmm. someone deliberately goes and melts it down. Yeah. It's just going to live through the generations. Like it's, it's, it's like a spirit, right? Yeah. And so you like breathe new life into it on your own. And someone said that to me actually like right before this antique show. Most of the antiques and the vintage pieces I buy, I buy for sampling and for inspiration. I don't end up wearing them quite that much, but I, I have them and I actually keep them in shadow boxes on my wall in my office. That's um, so cool. That's your mood board. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also because I don't pretend to be, again, like I don't think of myself as like some prolific designer. Like a lot of my best-selling pieces are silhouettes that I were vintage silhouettes and I might add like a modern Italian chain to it and I'm going to put diamonds on it and I might shrink it down 50% and make a larger version but the original iteration of it is vintage and I'm not going to pretend I made it up I don't need Mm. to pretend I made it up to feel validated and to say like you know, there was one of them that I found in like where my like my fingers got black, like sorting through like little findings. Yeah. You know, it could have just as easily been melted down. So I basically gave it life again. And now, you know, hundreds of women across the world get to wear it and enjoy it. And, you know, their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids are going to be wearing it and enjoying it and giving new life to it as well. So that's yeah. what's so special about the permanence of, you know, of fine jewelry and diamonds and gold. It's truly the best. I really, like, I wake (laughs) up in the morning and I'm like, holy shit, this is my job. I love it so much. I love it. I love it. Like, I can't, 
it's just, it, it, it feels kind of surreal to me sometimes that this is my job. Yeah, it is. Thank God. It's your job and you're yeah. doing it very, very well. Thank you. So yeah. tell me about the creative process for you. Like, how do you get an idea and how is it like, is it, you know, when you're in a cab on the way to work, is it like what, you know, like what, how does that work? Tell me, walk me through your headspace a little bit. So I, th I, I think each collection has evolved in different ways. Um, and I can kind of, you know, for example, I just launched Poppy, which um, I just launched a few weeks ago. Um, and it came from, A, I always knew I wanted to have a name. I called my grandfather Poppy, and I always knew I wanted Aww. to have a namesake collection for him. Um, and then, you know, in that same vein, like that was not the only reason why in combination with that, again, like I'm always doing classic diamond jewelry. And so I'm thinking about like classic diamond jewelry silhouettes that I feel need to be represented in a new diamond classic kind of way. And so the diamond cluster has existed for mm -hmm. the longest time. And yep. I was like, how am I going to do my version of a diamond cluster? And I always kind of wanted to do flowers, but it's a little girly for me. I don't really do flowers or pink or ruffles or anything yep. in that vein. <laughs> so I, you know, when I, when I thought about like Poppy, I was like, this could be my version of that. And so with that one, it was all concept first. And then I like sort of thought about what the design would look like and actually designed the entire collection, realized I hated it, scrapped the entire collection, wow. which I've never done before. It was pretty, it was terrible. I was so upset about it. But like Poppy 2.0 ended up being like a real, like paying homage to my grandfather. It's all pear shapes and um, round stones and marquees that are in these little clusters that have this sort of asymmetrical flower look to it. And mm -hmm. so that was that one. But, you know, my collection before that, Alchemy, was its own funny thing of, you know, I was thinking about diamond shapes a lot. And I was thinking about how women only really think about what diamond shapes they like when they're getting engaged, mm -hmm. except we buy ourselves jewelry long before that. Yeah. Or we're gifted jewelry long before that. So why is the conversation about diamond shapes only happening at that point of engagement? Yeah. And so I really, I was on vacation and I sat down and I thought about every diamond. And if that diamond had a personality, what would the personality of that diamond be? <laughs> And then, oh, and, this is awesome. And the, Tell me, what's the marquee like? <laughs> so, like to me, the marquee is like the like the wanderlust, irreverent girl who's like you know not like beats to the tune of her own drum. Okay, and she's her own person, and it's a little more organic and whatever you know. And and the pear shape is a little more creative. I don't know why, maybe because it's like it's a, it's asymmetrical, it's asymmetrical yep. right? Yep. And the round is the classic girl, and the and the emerald cut is the you know. I know exactly what I want. And and it all comes from like a, you know, the girl who comes in to buy that engagement ring that wants an emerald cut. You can show her the most gorgeous diamonds on the planet. She still wants an emerald yeah. cut. She doesn't care. And she doesn't care if it's going to look smaller, if it's going to, all the things that like can be a, a strike against an emerald cut, yep. that's what she wants. And that's how I started alchemy. And like that oh was my God, that I love it. I love it. Now <laughs> I'm picturing the personalities. I'm like, what's a square cut? Like, what's a princess? Like, I don't, I don't have, I don't remember. I can probably <laughs> find the notebook, but the princess cut to me would probably some be someone who's, you know, a little more like wants something that's very in, like in fashion today. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they don't care as much about, you know, it's like if it's the Bottega square toed shoes, every single shoe I'm going to wear this whole season is going to have square okay. at the end, Got you it. know? Yeah. And, you know, whatever it's going to be. And maybe it's my own personal judgment call, but, you know, it worked and it, and it's been great. And the funny thing is, is that I like alchemy is a is a collection where it was only like seven or eight styles at the beginning, but I did every single piece with four different shaped diamonds just so that I could see the difference. It's the same piece, like this this necklace that I'm wearing, yep, the I same version of it with pear shapes, marquees, or round stones. And it's amazing to me how people are like, I like that one, I don't like that it's one. It's so funny. But it's they're like what yeah. they're drawn to. Yeah. But and it, but you first of all, you have to be someone who loves jewelry to see to know the difference, right? Mm -hmm. But obviously it's only real jewelry lovers that are coming in and having this conversation with me. Yeah. But also, you know, it's like the 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 
this this instinctual difference that people feel between one and the other is kind of amazing. It's so interesting yeah. and it's so accurate. I'm like now going through my head, like, you know, friends and what they're drawn to. And yeah, it yeah. makes sense. It checks out with their personality yeah. and their overall style, you know? Totally. But then, you know, by the same token in the design space, so I'm already designed through 2023 now because I already at the antique show this year picked up a couple of pieces and I immediately was like, all right, I have an idea for a whole collection, but I had to launch Poppy. I mean, I didn't have to, I was excited to, and yep. you can only launch so much in a year. Yep. So I already have next year's collection Can't ready. stop, won't stop. Never. <laughs> and, then, and then there are other pieces. You know, last summer I was taking an exercise class. I do SLT, you know, this mega former. It's like a Pilates reformer. Okay. It's like okay. the only thing I'm, you know, I'm really good at. Well, it's, I'm worried about you now doing any sports. <laughs> no, don't. No sports for me. Like balls come at me and I duck, duck and roll. Um, Same way. This is why I'm a runner. I'm like a exactly. long distance runner. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so this mega former class, they put these plastic sheets in between because of COVID and you could kind of see your reflection, but only when the light was at a certain place. And I think I must have had a, a long night the night before. Sometimes I do like a, an early morning, you know, hungover and maybe slightly drunk workout. <laughs> and some, that's how you get it out of your system sometimes. Um, sweat and, it out. Exactly. And I saw, I must, I think I was wearing all my jewelry. Oh, this is why I'm saying this because I always take all my jewelry off every night. It's part of my ritual and put it back on again. But I think that night before there was, the jewelry wasn't coming off. Okay. So it was all on. And I'm looking at my reflection and I see like some hybrid version of two of my necklaces okay. that didn't exist. And I walked out of the out of the class, and I was like, "Lola and Penelope, they need to exist together in oh one God. necklace." <laughs> and truly, like ten days later, it was a necklace, and it's one of my best selling necklaces now. That's awesome. See, I would have come out of there like questioning my life decisions, and you came <laughs> with the whole <laughs> with the bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> and because I have such a great team now, all I have to do is call them and be like, don't you think that Penelope and Lola should have a baby and we're going to call it the Diamond Lola necklace? And it's just, can you make that for me? And can we put it on this chain? And they're like, yeah, we're going to totally do that for you. It's like they share your brain, which is awesome. <laughs> your diamond picker, your the rest of your team, they share your brain. Exactly. That's amazing. <laughs> they're super enthusiastic with me. And actually, it's part of the design process too, I think, is that they're everyone who works with me is very aesthetic and very creative in their own sense. And in their own way, most of them all, I think all of them have a side hustle that's somewhat creatively oriented, okay. whether they're in graphics or two of them have their own jewelry lines. And, you know, so it's also exciting for me because I can come in and I'd be like, I have this idea. What do you think? And I can tell right away. I'm like, okay. Okay. Never mind. That was a bad <laughs> one. I tried. Well, that's so fantastic because I do, I hear from a lot of designers and especially emerging designers that they are like, feel like they're in a silo, they're all on their own. And that can be a really difficult space to do, to be, you know, to yeah. not have people to bounce ideas off of. And so you have, you know, of course you have your friends in the couture community. And I know that you're friends with a lot of designers at couture. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, to know that you can get that from your team as well is fantastic. Yeah. I mean- it's a blessing. Yeah. No, You're it's blessed. true. It is. I mean, I do feel like I made a choice to – one thing I'll say about the diamond business is that it's very closed-lipped mm -hmm. and people are very private. Nobody ever wants to share anything and I'm not like that at all. And so when I started with Couture and Couture really was that moment for me where I'm just super open. Like I'll share anything. I'll share all my resources. I'll share – all of my knowledge because for all the things I know, there's a million things I don't know. And that I, and I feel like when you are of a generous spirit that that comes back Generosity to begets generosity. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. And so like, I feel like that in the community and I feel incredibly supported by this little world that we live in. Yeah. I mean, I always say that about Couture and I know it, I'm a publicist, it sounds like shtick, but I just feel like this particular section of our industry, the couture world, we use the word community all the time, but it really, it really is that, you know, it's, it's something that 
you can't you can opt in and out of right Right. unlike family you're stuck with your family but (laughs) community you have to i don't know uphold a certain standard and uphold a certain generosity of spirit i feel like in order to really get everything out of it that you can you know yeah it's you know a two-way street you know people share with the designers around them and the number of times i see designers taking a retailer by the hand and walking them over to someone else's salon space. So you've got to check out this collection. You're going to love it. I mean, it's just, I want to tear up every time I see that because it's true. not common throughout the rest of the industry. It's so, so it's a beautiful. It's so true. It's so true. And it's also, you know, I, that's why I don't talk about my customers, like my retail partners being customers. And I say my partners because it is in the spirit of partnership that your business really grows, you know? And so now, even now when we're getting ready for Couture and I'm, you know, calling some of my potential clients, the way that I always reach out is, do you think we would be good partners for each other? Mm -hmm. Because it's not really about me I don't, there's no ego in it for me. There's no just like, I want to have my stuff sitting in this store or in this website. If it's not going to work, yeah. It's a long-term relationship. So it's not, if it's not going to work for both of you, then you don't need to waste anyone's time. It's true. (laughs) To be honest. I mean, and it's, I think it's fair to try something with someone if they're like, I hope it works, but you know, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But yeah, yeah. you don't need anyone just blowing smoke just to make you feel good. Yeah. They're, you're busy. No, exactly. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and also it's not to say that I don't want to – I always am working so hard to be the best version of myself professionally. But I don't – I don't the, the goal I don't think is ever to work to sell your brand to the person who then has to sell your brand. It's to educate them. Mm-hmm. It's to in, make them feel enthusiastic about it. It's to make them feel supported and loved. But, you know, I just came back from a trunk show yesterday. And when I go there, I'm – psyched to get there. They made this beautiful dinner for me. They had their clients there. They had like these cookies and a menu and a thing. And we had a speech and we drank too many martinis. And it was amazing (laughs) and fun. And it was amazing. Like, it's like, I can't wait to go back there. I never leave. And I'm like, oh, I leave. And I'm like, thank you. Yeah. I'm so pleased to be here. That's so awesome. Well, and so speaking of being busy, um, and like you said, you are there in person for the majority of your trunk shows and personal appearances. Um, but you're also a mom and, you know, a, and a good friend to people. So how do you do it? How do you create that? How do you create any kind of balance? How how do you carve out any time for self-care? Mm-hmm. I sleep six hours a night maximum. Oh my God. I need to sleep some more. It's <laughs> yeah, you do. a little bit of an issue. But I think six hours is like my sweet spot. I think if I get six hours, I'm Are all Are you good. like 80? Like that's what happens when people get older. They need less yeah, and less. Sleep. Pretty much. Um, I I mean, I, um, I feel like First of all, I do feel like it's quality, not quantity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just like your diamonds, you know? Yep. It's all about mm-hmm. the quality, not the quantity. Um, and so I'm very mindful of when I'm with my kids that I'm extremely present for them. And when I'm not, not to say that, you know, we're texting and we're in touch all the time but and during the day, but I happen to have two unbelievably supportive children who have my back and who are, have a vet, like really they're my biggest cheerleaders. And also they're like Virgos and they're like very, you know, can't miss a day of school and, you know, what don't, we can't be late. And I didn't do uh, my, my homework's not neat enough. And so I have learned work ethic from them because I'm more, you know, my, my suitcase. I, sometimes I won't even unpack my suitcase. I'll just pull another suitcase out and pack a new one and I'll let the other one sit there <laughs> until I get back. <laughs> I just feel like that's the, like the mind of the creative space, I guess. Um, and, and outside of that, I don't know. I'm, 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 I feel like I very much rely on the support of my team and my friends and the people that love me. And also I just feel like you got to just keep moving, you know, like yeah. life. truly goes by in a minute. And I feel like if you don't, if you're not a person of action, it just, life doesn't happen to you. And I've I've watched it. And I think maybe working with my grandfather too, because he was older. And so when I started working for him, he was already 79. So I only got 10 years of Mm. really knowing him as an adult. And I think I had to like condense it. And so I feel, mm-hmm. you know, I turned 40 over COVID in lockdown. Tr- truly, we were okay. still in lockdown. And I 
thought to myself, and I had this like plans of making this big 40th birthday party okay. for myself, that then I was like, oh, the, it'll be over by September when my kids are going to be bar mitzvahed. So we're just going to do a combined like mm-hmm. giant 40th birthday party combined with a bar mitzvah. And then, you know, October, it was September, yep. October mm-hmm. came and went, although I did make them great pandemic bar mitzvah in the backyard. Okay, good. It was, it was killer. Um, and so I think in that time, you know, in fact, like when we went into lockdown, I feel like a lot of my designer friends were just kind of freaking out and, you know, doing, thinking that the world was coming to an end. And my answer to everybody was just like, don't let the bicycle tip over. Keep going. As long yeah. as you just keep moving, as long as you keep the momentum going forward, which was the right philosophy for then. But then the minute that I could kick it up again, I mean, when I say we didn't stop, I found a casting house in Rhode Island in March 2020. <laughs> I had a diamond dealer that I used to that my grandfather used to sell to in North Carolina oh my God. who shipped me diamonds and then I would do runs into the city where I would drive into the city. We're really talking early April 2020. Okay. I would drive into the Nobody city. Nobody was doing anything. Yeah. And yeah. They'd roll down the back window. They'd throw the diamonds into the back seat. And then I'd roll up the window and then drive back. And then I would put my mask on. And then I'd roll down the window, drive to Jersey where my jeweler was. And then I would pass him the diamonds. And then the castings would come. And I'd have the castings shipped directly to my jeweler. And we truly, we didn't stop. We manufactured throughout the pandemic. That's and perseverance right there. Yeah. By June 2020, I had moved to a new office space, and we were up and at them again. Wow. That's fantastic. So that's – I think that's it. I mean, I don't know. Well, I certainly don't have the answer. But. Well, it does – you know, I've heard this exp- – you know, we – everyone talks about work-life balance, right? But I've heard an alternative theory um, from a psychologist, I think is her title, Ellen Langer. But she talks about – work-life integration. And that's a lot easier. Well, not easier. I think it's, it could be more difficult, but I, I see like when you're talking, that's what I see. It's like, you know, your work isn't something separate from your life with your family, with your kids, right? right. They're very much a part of it and they know what it is that you're doing. And obviously they have a vested interest. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I think that that's, you know, that's how to feel balance, even if you're not like, okay, I'm carving out, you know, on the weekends, I only ever go to the park with my kids or whatever the case is, you know, because it's just not, it's not feasible when you have to be doing a trunk show or PA somewhere, right? right. I mean, that's a really nice way of saying that I'm a workaholic. And I mean, I am too, so. so. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is true. Like I do, I, I think that, first of all, in that same time when my, you know, my kids were doing virtual school, they were also my pack and ship department. So Mm -hmm. in their lunch break, they were, they were <laughs> making FedEx boxes for me, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, they make fun of me. They we 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 were just on vacation together and we were talking about it. I got really mad at them at some point in in the pit. There was only one time that I like really lost it while we were in lockdown. Okay. Where I was so mad at them that I I was like, I'm icing you out. I think I was mad at them because they ignored me. I was like, <laughs> Oh, you wanna know what it feels like to be ignored? <laughs> Here we go. And I didn't talk to them for like 12, a full 12 hours. Wow. I think I kept my AirPods in. I stomped around the house. I was so annoyed with them. And so now it's turned into a, mom, remember when you didn't talk to us for all of lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> it started with, remember, was, you know, it's, it's evolved. It was a week that it was all of lockdown, you know. Oh, that's then, so funny. <laughs> and when we finally came back, I was like, all right, now when I after the twelve hours, it gave me time to you know think about what it was, what the punishment was going to be, and I thought you know we I was like you, you're off on Friday at what what time do you end school on Fridays in lockdown in virtual school noon twelve forty five my workday goes till six so you can clean the house <laughs> so I'd be on Zoom calls and you'd see one of my sons taking the mop or the vacuum yeah. behind the call oh nice <laughs> and then my clients would be like. How did you do that? What'd you do? <laughs> You're like, never mind. <laughs> That's so cute. Oh my God. They sound awesome. I need to hang out with your kids. They're really they're, they're kind of cool. They're fun kids. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I want to wrap up with a question that I ask everyone. You know, we always say there's no such thing as a jewelry emergency, but there is obviously such a thing as a jewelry emergency. So can you can you think of one particular jewelry emergency that sticks out? You don't have to name names. God, I have so many jewels. I, I <laughs> no. feel like my whole life is jewelry emergencies. 
I make well, we have a we have a line in my office. Everything's possible at Jade Trow. Okay. So, you know, and we and I also tell my team if you don't ask, you don't get, but no is a perfectly acceptable answer and my mm-hmm. kids too. So, you know, you can't be disappointed if you hear no. But I mean, in the most recent, so I just started making these nameplate necklaces. Which are fabulous. So thank you. Um and I think it was February tenth. And I was at a trunk show and one of the, the buyer said, you know, who would love this? The owner of the store would love this. Could you get it to her by Valentine's Day? Oh my it was God. Thursday. Okay. We, we cast it at the, we printed it and cast it at the same day. We, we got the casting on Friday morning and we set it and we got it out for Saturday delivery. Oh my God. Valentine's Day. Wow. Wait, you really made it happen. I hope it wasn't a long, complicated name. It was a pretty complicated (laughs) name, actually. It was like nine letters. Oh, my God. I had to kind because I design each one separately. Yeah. Even though I have each letter of the alphabet, when you push them all together, sometimes the the diamonds are too close to each other and they have to be modified and the placement needs to be changed a little. But I mean, through the years, there has been many, many jewelry emergencies. And I think that they are emergencies because if like... You know, I feel the same way about parties actually now, but I didn't always feel that way about parties. I used to think that it was waste, like kind of wasteful. But now I think if you don't commemorate occasions with mm. events and with things as permanent as jewelry, then you kind of forget that they happened. Yeah. Well, and speaking of parties, I have a theory that any birthday that happened during the pandemic didn't actually happen. So it sounds like this September we're going to have to celebrate your 40th birthday. Yes. Well, April. Okay. (laughs) By the way, it was April. My birthday just happened two weeks ago and I treated it like my 40th. I was in Miami and I stayed up for the full 24 hours of my birthday. I did. (laughs) I got in. I I flew in on the 13th. I dropped my kids off at my mom's. I went out. I stayed out all night. Wow. And then I had a lunch with some clients. It was beautiful. And we looked at lots of jewelry. I, I had jewelry rolls with me, of course. Of course. You know, it's a trunk show up moment, little, little mini one. And then, and then I came back and exercised and spent some time with my kids. And then we went back down to South Beach and I had a family dinner and I was up. Wow. I was up the whole, the whole birthday. The old gal still got it. I love Kinda, it. You know, <laughs> age is just a number. It sure is. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come and sit down and talk to me. And I can't wait to see you soon in Las Vegas and see the full of the Poppy collection and um, everything else you've got going. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for listening to the Couture Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.